Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rail Group On Air, presented by Railway Age and Railway Track and Structures magazines and International Railway Journal. I'm your host, Bill Wilson, and I am the editor-in-chief of RTNS Magazine, and welcome to another podcast. This is Rail Group On Air. Get ready for the premiere of On the Line, where the rail media outlets of Simmons Boardman Publishing talk about the top news stories of the month. Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Wilson, editor-in-chief of RTNS. I am here with Bill Van Tuono. He's the editor-in-chief of Railway Age. And Kevin Smith, who is the editor-in-chief of International Railway Journal. And we're here to cover our top stories in the month of October. So to get things rolling, we're going to turn it over to Mr. Van Tuono of Railway Age, and he's going to start with his first story. Well, thank you, Bill. Thanks for referring to me as Mr. Van Tuono. Not too many people say that. It has been a tumultuous month uh, in October, a lot going on in the industry. Um, Needless to say, the biggest news has been the now fi- uh, finalized in terms of the agreement, uh, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern merger to form CPKC, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City. That uh, the name eventually will uh, will roll off the tongue uh, uh, quickly. CPKC. Say it ten times fast. Um, so the uh, the agreement is in place. Uh, there there was a lot of back and forth, as you know. The the merger. Uh, was first proposed in March, and then a month later, uh, CN stepped in with a counteroffer, and it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and uh, eventually the combination that I, th- I think everybody expected to uh, to prevail was Canadian Pacific and, and Kansas City Southern, uh, a much easier lift from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, concerning the Surface Transportation Board, several factors about that. Um, the, uh, initially, the, the STB had, had ruled that it, with the merger would proceed, uh, the Canadian Pacific deal would, would proceed under the, the old or pre-2001 merger rules that grants an exemption to uh, Kansas City Southern because of Kansas City Southern's uh, small size in relation to all the other class ones. Uh, also, the voting trust uh, was, was approved between uh, Canadian Pacific and, and Kansas City Southern. So those are two critical pieces. Uh, CN steps in and it's, and it's a much heavier regulatory lift. They, they came back with a, uh, a counter offer with a, a, a tremendous premium on what uh, CP was offering, but after all, uh, after all was said and done, um, the the uh, the combination of uh, CP and KCS is moving forward. Um, the the carriers uh, are expecting that the Surface Transportation Board will rule on that and rule in their favor in about a year. That might be a little optimistic in terms of a timeline, but it it is it is doable, I would say. Um, the uh, merger is uh, is essentially an, an end-to-end. Um, it is, there is no overlap at all. Um, although I think, I think as things move forward, uh, the other carriers weigh in, uh, uh, BNSF, Union Pacific, most importantly, because they are the, the two other class ones that uh, uh, have border connections with, with Mexico. Uh, CN, I'm sure, will uh, will have will have something to say. So there's going to be, and maybe even CSX and Norfolk Southern. But um, so there, you know, as in any merger proceeding, there's going to be some, uh, I guess, uh, horse trading, if you want to call it that, or trackage rights and certain agreements. But once it's all ironed out, uh, I think um, uh, I, I, I really think, as many observers in this industry do, uh, the the merger will will proceed and uh, 
uh, plans are, are underway now. This is kind of exciting for you rail fans out there. Uh, they're planning on running a uh, steam train excursion from Calgary uh, to Kansas City to Mexico City, pulled by the, uh, the famous uh, 2816, the Royal, the Empress, the Royal Canadian Pacific uh, uh, 464. Uh, and a business train as a commemorative thing. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, the, other, uh, the other piece of news really of significance is this very volatile uh, car, uh, car uh, freight car market and, uh, and the shippers, what, they, what, what shippers are, uh, are, are doing. And they're doing a lot of complaining uh, to, to the STB. They... Um, they see that uh, the you know the STB has a what I would call an activist chairman Marty Oberman who's been um, speaking in a lot of public forums about service you know service quality uh, getting into things like uh, like rates and uh, uh, and we're dealing uh, we're dealing with a, a thoroughly disrupted supply chain okay not caused by the railroads uh, the railroads are just trying to deal with it. Uh, a lot of it has to do with intermodal. Okay, all the containers that are coming uh, coming from overseas, uh, mainly from the the uh, uh, Asia, you know, for, from Asia, from China specifically. Uh, we've reported on massive amounts of uh, container ships just sitting out there in, in in the water off the ports, like in Los Angeles and Long Beach. They can't be unloaded because there's, there aren't enough people to do the unloading, um, you know, and the railroads can't move the containers uh, if, if, there, if there aren't enough people to get them off the ships and get them onto the rail cars or get them, on, or get them onto trucks where they're drayed uh, inland to, uh, to, to a transload facility where, uh, where not only are, uh, is, is it, it's not a simple matter of, of, uh, of loading a container on, on a rail car because these are international sized containers, they're smaller. So the cargo has to be transloaded from the international or ISO sized container to a domestic uh, container uh, in, 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 many, in, in many cases. Now, even though the rail cars will handle uh, the, the, um, the international sized containers the since the final um, destination is handled by a domestic truck, okay, uh, you, it, it's got to be in the in a uh, domestically sized container that's going to fit on a domestic truck chassis. Uh, so again, uh, it, it's really not uh, the railroads are doing their best to try to mitigate some of the some of the. Uh, um, some of the delays, but there's only so much they can do. So as a result, the intermodal traffic uh, um, in the first, uh, well, through, through this year uh, has, been, has been slipping and it's usually growing. It's not, it's, uh, it's been either flat or, or down uh, uh, slightly. Um, so just looking at, um, at rail car orders in, in particular, we, uh, we follow uh, what the Cowan and Company uh, puts out. And that's, of course, that company, one of the managing directors, uh, Jason Seidel, is our Wall Street contributing editor. And they do quarterly, they do a, a survey of shippers, rail shippers, and they ask them about car orders or freight car orders, and which is a good gauge of, of, of the market. And they also ask them about uh, what they expect in terms of pricing or rates. So, um, just a, a few points here, uh, in the most recent survey, which was for the third quarter of this year, uh, 48% of all shippers survey said, said they will or may order rail cars in the next 12 months. Um, that's in line with the second quarter survey from Cowan. 52%, of course, 48 and 52 is 100, <laughs> at least last time I checked it was, uh, said they do not plan to order rail cars compared to 53%, slight change. So uh, Seidel and company say the largely unchanged results suggest that demand remains strong, but that the steel premium may still 
be keeping some buyers on the sideline. Uh, this should continue to give momentum to lease rates on existing fleets. So the, the price of steel has been climbing, and that, of course, affects rail car production. The price of rail cars, um, not only for the uh, the leasing companies like the, the CITs and the GATXs to uh, um, to purchase those cars, but then the the rates uh, that they, they're the lease rates, because as you know, about seventy percent or uh, or thereabouts of the uh, of the North American rail interchange fleet is not owned by the railroads. It is in the hands of the 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 shippers uh, own either directly own or lease those cars. The railroads got out of the car owning business. Uh, years ago, and uh, a, a shrinking percentage of uh, of the North American rail car fleet is uh, is owned by the carriers themselves. Um, so, uh, within those forty eight percent who are contemplating orders in the next twelve months, sixty percent said yes, they do plan to place orders, uh, and that's a significant jump from forty eight percent in the prior quarter. Forty uh, percent said maybe compared with 52% in, in the second quarter. Um, Cowan said this points to an increase in the level of certainty about ordering within the total shipper group relative to the past quarter. For some buyers who have been waiting for the steel premium to ease, fulfillment of the need for new cars cannot be pushed off further. Um, they term this as an incremental positive for freight car manufacturers. So. Just uh, another another quick but uh, important point here. Uh, there are concerns about uh, among the shippers about rail capacity, economic conditions, and employment. Um, Cowan's survey says that 70% of shippers said they are concerned about rail capacity. That's an eight basis point jump compared to the prior quarter and a two basis point jump compared to the third quarter of 2020. Uh, they say with a clear increase in the concern about rail capacity, a survey record, it indicates the clear overall tightness across all modes of transportation has continued. Among those who cited equipment as their cause for concern, more cited locomotives, boxcars, hopper cars, and gondolas, while fewer respondents answered tank cars, containers, and center beam flat cars. Uh, the results were relatively in line with the prior quarter, although containers Again, getting back to that, the uh, intermodal congestion are the number one cause of concern when it comes to uh, rail equipment. So those are the top stories, at least mine, for uh, for this past month of October. Intermodal congestion, Bill, is there any prospect of that situation alleviating anytime soon? Are we going to see things improve there? Well, <laughs> if you listen to some of the analysts uh, and some of the economists there, Many of them have said, oh, it's going to start easing up next month. And they've been saying that for about a year. Mm. So <laughs> who knows at this at this point, uh, there's there's just the the uh, the economy is uh, is is recovering. Um, and there seems to be more of a focus on consumer spending on goods rather than on on. Um, uh, event, uh, I, won't, I won't say events, but on experiences like going to a restaurant or going on a vacation or whatever, people are buying stuff, uh, um, or, and, and including that are, are, are homes. Uh, uh, people, uh, the real estate market in the United States is, is berserk. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's, a, it's a buy, it's a seller's market. People are, are, are bidding on, um, on, on homes and paying premiums uh, for homes that they want. Um, so, and uh, we see at least, in, you know, in my neighborhood, we see new houses going up uh, like I've never seen before, people putting in swimming pools and other things. So they're spending their, you know, they're spending their, their money on quote unquote stuff. Uh, but that, that stuff has to come from someplace. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it, to answer your question, is it going to ease up anytime soon? Probably not. But I could be wrong. Bill, what's your take on the labor shortage here, uh, Bill? And uh, maybe, Kevin, you can also talk about what the situation is over there in England. But um, the labor shortage here in the U.S. to me is very, very puzzling. 
Uh, I'm just kind of throwing it back to they don't have enough uh, people in the shipyards or, you know, in those areas to work with all the traffic, the cargo traffic. What's your take on that? So why, why are we seeing this huge labor shortage when we have all these people who are available for work? Well, I think there's there's a couple of reasons, Bill. Uh, one is that, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, at least for some people, uh, they've they've been the the beneficiary of uh, needed or necessary government assistance. You know, when they with with the stimulus money, when uh, when their businesses were uh, were closed down, uh, or either permanently or, or temporarily. Um, you know, and, and in some cases, especially for maybe the younger labor force, uh, they, they can make more money uh, collecting unemployment than, than working, you know, when you, when you go work at a place where you're paid minimum wage. Um, the other thing is that we're noticing really a, people are desiring a lifestyle change. And there's a lot of activity where people are, they don't want to go back to work in their traditional jobs, in their offices or factories or wherever they're working, they want a better life. Uh, and and there, there's a lot more entrepreneurialism in place. Uh, there was one example I saw on, on the uh, national news the other day about uh, um, a man who was laid off from his job with a, uh, a cleaning company. And, and he decided to start his own business. So he got his uh, he got his wife and his and his older kids to help out. They started a family business, house cleaning, you know, carpeting, hard hard floors, uh, uh, furniture, what have you. And he said business is booming, and he's making more money uh, than he had working for somebody else, and uh, and he has a much better quality of life. That's that's what people uh, people really want. That um, so I think when you put those two factors together. Um, you know, along, along with uh, uh, the reluctance of a lot of large companies to really not pay people what they're worth, uh, a lot of people are going to say, I don't need this. I can do something else. So, you know, uh, that's that. So that's that's what I think is happening. It's not just one factor. It's a whole bunch of things. COVID has really changed uh, our society uh, and hopefully for the better. Uh, despite the tragedy of losing more than 700,000 people in, in the United States alone. And Kevin, what's the situation over there in, in Europe with, with labor? Are they facing the same issues or yeah, is it different? Absolutely the same issues. Um, yeah, there's just a, ge a general shortage of people to do everyday, um, you know, sort of regular jobs, I suppose. Um, and there's the issue as well of, of, of COVID also, you know, people you know there's a track and trace system in this country, certainly, and people are you know getting hit by that and then informed not to work, which is forcing some businesses to close. And um, yeah, this this economic crisis is quite different to ones before because it's not people have been sat at home for a long time. They've got a lot of disposable income and now the, the economy is opened up again and there's this huge pent up demand and people are trying to sort of spend that money. Just going back to what Bill was talking about previously and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's it's translating into you know, huge demand and, and and problems in supply chain, like Bill was talking about, which is you know, evident in Europe as well. I mean, there was in the height of the crisis, I think that the, um, the expectation was that the economy would slow with it, but where people were at home trying to buy stuff, um, there was huge sort of pent up demand for things. And in a way, the, the rail sector supported that process uh, in the early in the early weeks and months of the pandemic by providing a lot of the equipment that people were demanding in Europe quickly from China uh, over the, the land bridge um, to Europe and you know, especially for demand for personal protective equipment that certainly you know, rail played a, a key role in that process early on but, um, you know, but you do see the labour sources here you know, in, in impacting rail services in terms of number of staff available on trains you know leading to cancellations but in Europe passenger operations generally are still below what they were you know, sort of pre-pandemic you know the, the timetables aren't fully restored the demand isn't fully restored it's probably around sort of 70 to 80 percent um which is you know, certainly better than where it was you know, six months ago middle of last winter when we were facing lockdowns but you know the, the economic impact of that is going to drag on for a, a long time 
Bill, going back to the the merger with uh, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern, Canadian National have any chance at at um, becoming a partner with Kansas City Southern? Was there any chance? I think it was. Yeah, there was, but it was very small, uh, considering what CN was uh, uh, was up against. The uh, CN or the STB rather. Uh, uh, struck down the uh, CN's voting trust application, rejected it outright, unanimously. And um, <clears throat> and, of, uh, and one thing they did do, do uh, quickly was, uh, uh, was rule that the, uh, the CN-KCS combination would be under the new merger rules. But we already knew that because it, was a, it would be a much larger, uh, larger combined entity. So I think uh, given the, uh, the heavy regulatory lift and everything CN was up against, um, uh, their, the chances were, were very, very slim. And I think a, a lot of people uh, uh, knew that probably maybe within CN itself. Uh, uh, that said, um, I think CN probably had no choice really but to make a counter offer. That's how that's how railroad mergers go. If you go back in history, uh, all the way back to the, you know, the, the, the uh, start of uh, um, the mega merger era, which is really from about 1970 onward, you know, there are various combinations that uh, uh, didn't come through that were, that were struck down. Uh, um, you know, there's a lot of competition if, uh, you know, going back, uh, 30 years, the uh, or more, or more, slightly less than 30 years, the battle for Conrail between Norfolk Southern and CSX. You know that was a, I remember that well. <laughs> CSX uh, and Conrail got together and uh, formed a, uh, you know, formed a partnership, and then Norfolk Southern stepped in and said, ah, "No, you don't." And uh, eventually, what what wound up happening was CN, or rather CSX and. Uh, Norfolk Southern splitting Conrail, and then at the order under the order of the STB, um, forming these um, shared assets areas to handle uh, the the uh, traffic where there was a lot of where there was a lot of overlap, uh, and that, that was like a three or four year process. Is this the last mega class one merger we're going to see? Never say never, Bill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, it, uh, I think probably, uh, let me qualify that. It, it'll be the last, but uh, don't be surprised if a few years down the road, maybe when the political climate changes, uh, the regulatory climate changes, there might, uh, we, we might see more, another, uh, what's quote unquote, a final round. I think uh, what would have happened if CN had uh, uh, had won and gotten Kansas City Southern, then right away you'd see here, you know, here's CSX, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific and BNSF and, and Canadian Pacific, uh, you know, all of a sudden coming together and saying, well, we have to do something. So uh, possible combinations. I don't, I don't know. CP and uh or and CSX or Union Pacific and uh, and CSX Norfolk Southern BNSF, uh, um, but that was um, that didn't happen. So, uh, but you never know. Not wanting to add to your speculation, but um, is is consolidation <laughs> is that always the answer here? You know, bigger is better. You know, or, or no, could it go the other way? Could some of these you know, huge railroads be you know, ultimately split up to be more efficient if that's the way to go in the future? Well. If you look at uh, what happened after the after deregulation or partial deregulation in 1980 uh, under the Staggers Rail Act, railroads were partially deregulated uh, and were allowed to charge uh, market rates for their uh, uh, for for moving freight um, and things like line sales and line abandonments got a lot easier. Um, there was there were these uh, huge numbers of spinoffs, which which generated this very healthy, very successful short line and regional railroad industry, where we've got 550 some class two and class three carriers, um, and um, uh, the emergence of these holding companies like Genesee and Wyoming or Anacostia uh, or Omnitracks that are 
holding companies for a whole conglomeration of, uh, of short lines and regionals. So uh, is bigger better? Well, from a logistics standpoint, yeah, it, 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 it could be with, you know, single line service is always better than, than, you know, handoffs and, and interchanges. But on the other hand, with technology, um, it, it's not so much of a concern. All the technology that's come, uh, come into play now with artificial intelligence and tracking mm -hmm. and everything the customers demand, you know, whether you're an Amazon customer or a, or a, a, a shipper who's, who puts containers on rail cars, you have that, you have the, the, the transparency, you have the information available. Um, I don't think the customer, rail customers really care about who's carrying their, uh, their box <laughs> or their load, as long as it, as long as they know where it is and it, and it gets to, gets to where it's, where it's supposed to go when expected. So um, there are plus and minuses. And again, that's a, that's a very long answer to a, short concise question <laughs> that's what we do well, let's switch it over uh, to the international side of things and and kevin what do you got for us uh, sure. that happened during the month of october so i mean the big story in october really uh, from a and us you know, we cover the world at irj but from a european perspective and we you know, gave it a lot of coverage in our, our um, november issue which we finished up last week um was the connecting europe express it's our our cover image um this is a, a special train that was um, developed as part of the, the European Year of Rail. Um, our listeners don't know, but uh, 2021 is the European Year of Rail, a celebration of, uh, and a moment led by the European Commission to mark rail as a sustainable transport mode and you know, something that's worth investing in and getting behind. And, and really the flagship initiative of that, you know, this, this year-long year event was the Connecting Europe Express. And this is a, a train that started its journey in Lisbon on September the 2nd and then traveled across 26 countries in, in Europe over the course of uh, 36 days, I believe, and uh, finished up in Paris on um, October the 7th. And yeah, I mean, there were, there were events and different um, meetings held along along the route so each day the train would you know, go so far and um, it would be met by a delegation at, you know where it was stopping that day to you know, mark this important day and and often those would coincide with you no know, key announcements relating to rail investment in certain countries you know, it was particularly in the, in the Balkans in an area of uh, Europe where rail investment is, you know, in the last few years been quite suppressed or you know, maybe not as high as other other modes but there's you no know, Politicians from, from Serbia, for example, came out and you know sort of probably re-announced, but you know made the point that they're spending a lot of money on improving rail in, infrastructure in those countries. Um, similarly, in, in Switzerland, there's a key announcement about um, the adoption of uh, digital automatic coupling across uh, universal freight fleet, which is you know, quite a key step forward for what's been a, an interesting project that we've covered, you know, extensively in, in IRJ. So. Um, yeah, it's, it was a really visible and a great demonstration of, of, of rail, really. And, uh, you know, 2021, arguably, has been probably the worst year ever to hold a year-long year celebration of rail because, you know, for half of the year, Europe couldn't travel or couldn't move anywhere. So it's, it's been quite frustrating. And um, calls to extend the European Year of Rail into 2022 were uh, denied in a story that we ran on IRJ earlier this year, which is again disappointing. But you know, this was a you know, the, the flagship event, and it really came together. And um, but we've got a great report in our November issue from my colleague David Burroughs, who um, who travelled out to Berlin initially and um, attended a conference there on um, long distance rail transport, and 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 then took the took the Connecting Europe Express himself over to uh, to Hamburg and up to Copenhagen and. He, you know, he sort of dropped down to Brussels sort of off, off his own back and uh, you know, sampled cross-border rail travel in Europe uh, in the pandemic age, which he told me was an interesting experience. And then, um, and then rejoined the train in Brussels where there was another event that took place and um, continued down to Luxembourg. And again, it was, it was met by European dignitaries and politicians the whole way. So yeah, it's, it's been a really you know, interesting event. Um, also as well, I mean, this train as well as being a great advert and a, you know, the greatest symbol of rail throughout the year has also highlighted many of the flaws. And I think to the, to the credit of the European Commission and people involved in this process, they've been quite keen to you know, point out the difficulties of rail transport and the necessary improvements in Europe to um, achieve a lot of the improvements that are included in the, uh, 
um, smart sustainable uh, transport strategy which was released last december which outlines targets to increase uh, like double high speed rail traffic by 2030 and um, similar targets for freight you know 30 percent of all freight transport should be by rail by 2030 but uh, that's they're, they're ambitious targets and they're they're difficult to achieve when uh, there's different signaling systems between different countries or you've got to change locomotive or um, you know, different vehicles aren't authorized to operate on certain areas of track and um, yeah so and and you know, this this train clearly demonstrated that I mean it started its journey in Lisbon which is an area where you know, it's, it's a broad gauge network and then continued into Spain which is also broad gauge but when it went into France had to you know switch switch the whole entire train you know, it's, it's the same train but it's a different train because it's running on also on a standard gauge track and it's a similar experience when the train was in the uh, the Baltic region, where the, uh, a whole different train was once again used to cover up uh, in, uh, into Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. So, um, yeah, it's uh, also the, you know, a story that my you know, David told me about his journey on the train was that it went over a certain area of track. I think it was in Denmark, and literally, people that were sat in one coach had to stand up and move into the next coach because that particular vehicle wasn't authorized for that area of track in that country so even though the train has continued to operate and, and that's some of the you know the regulatory hurdles that we're we're up against here um so yeah no really interesting and and, and you know, european year of rail has certainly been a good, good opportunity but the, the question is now whether this converts into anything feasible and um concrete in the years ahead you know that, that rail is able to deliver these targets that's been set out by the European Commission in the next nine, 10 years or so. Um, and the reason that they want to achieve those targets is because of climate change. So this, this huge global issue that, and, and shifting uh, transport, which is the second largest overall emitter of um, greenhouse gas, gases, um, shift reducing that amount and shift a way of doing that is shifting transport traffic to rail a, a green mode you know, a lot of european infrastructure not all of it admittedly is electrified so you can run electric green trains around europe so um that, that's a definitive argument here um but this is also in the backdrop of another key event and another um you know key train service and flagship train service it's the uh, the climate train as part of the rail to cop as the the, uh, the COP26 event, which is scheduled to take place for next week in Glasgow, and you know, seen as a key event in terms of hopefully following through with the Paris Agreement to uh, you know, limit global warming and to you know, 1.5 degrees or less over the next you know, rest of the century. And uh, you know, world leaders will be gathering in Glasgow from next week to discuss and hopefully come up to some kind of agreement. Um, and as part of that is a, is a climate train that's uh, going to journey from Amsterdam to Glasgow this Saturday, the 30th of October, and it's you know, joined by a lot of young people who are making the case that you know, we need sustainable transport choices. And um, yeah, that they're, they're going to be doing that. And the real question for this, the, the COP is, you know, for the rail sector is getting its voice heard. I mean, uh, I've you know, looked at myself and I'm actually going to attend the event. Uh, there's some special rail events taking place, but there's, there's, a, there's a transport day at COP and rail is not even on this, the slate to be discussed. All of the sessions are on road, aviation and shipping to reduce emissions from them. And you know, the discussion is centered around like new technologies and electric cars, hydrogen planes and, and things like this that are still in development. and my feeling and I, I make this point in the article um, this month uh, in IRJ is that you know, rail is a green sustainable transport mode and we should be shifting more of our traffic to that as a way of reducing carbon emissions and uh, delivering the, the reduction that we need and uh, yeah more of the conversation should be centered on this so yeah. So I, I guess I have a question for both you and, and Bill with the electric, you know, train movement, um, and part of my ignorance, but I, I would think is Europe further ahead in that movement than the North America? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, majority of Europe is well, not the majority, but you know, a vast majority of the certainly the main lines, the the ten T core network on continental Europe, you know, is electrified, and if it isn't, there there are movements to electrify it and. Um, 
yeah but but there are you know still a great number of diesel trains and locomotives still running around and um, another article that we run in the november issue is an interview with michael peter the ceo of siemens who refers to um the, the potential market for alternative traction vehicles in europe which he estimates that 20,000 be that hydrogen or, ba or battery multiple units. So you know, there's, there's a big demand for that. And electrification doesn't always add up economically, you know, on small branch lines or feeder lines to the network. So, you know, there's, there's definite movement there to you know, make these green and sustainable, reduce rails diesel emissions um, by inducing these alternative traction trains. And, you know, and, and we see that all the time. There's a, there's a growing trend in this market. Um, for battery and hydrogen, whether that's even in tenders for German operating contracts that require the bidder to offer you know, a non-diesel train in what they're doing, be that battery or hydrogen, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a growing trend. And, and you know, you see that in the US as well. I mean, whether electrification will take on on the class ones is and Mr. Vantuono shakes his head. So there's, no, there's no. Your answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the the no. It's it it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to uh, to to electrify really from an economic standpoint. Uh, electrification is uh, uh, it's expensive. Uh, it adds to uh, maintenance costs because um, it's not only just putting up catenary. Uh, but it's it's also putting up all the power substations and uh, and everything else uh, needed to go. And and with the U.S. system, uh, looking at you know the Class One system alone is uh, you know tens of thousands of miles. Um, there there had been some uh, investigation a number of years ago uh, by BNSF actually, which has always been sort of ahead of the curve with, um, uh, technology, uh, with thinking differently. Um, <clears throat> there had been a, uh, uh, proposal to build these huge wind farms in the, uh, in the Rocky mountains to generate, uh, electricity for the national grid, which would be very sustainable, you know, rather than coal fired or uh, power plants or, uh, uh, nuclear fired or even natural gas, which is which is quite clean. But uh, so you generate these uh, generate electricity through wind farms, but then you need the infrastructure, you need the grid to deliver that power. Well, the railroads have the right of way, and um, so why not build the electrification system, and then the railroads could tap off of that. Um, for for their own power okay so you, you you've got you've got the very high voltage uh lines being uh being built on the on the railroad right of ways and then and then uh you step that voltage down to you know 25 kv or ac whatever you need but then you have the investment in electric locomotives and and the railroads have a a huge sunk investment in uh, in diesel electric locomotives aside 20 class ones alone i i think the fleet size is about 20 25000 um it, it it just it it's really a, a really heavy lift so okay so what's the alternative well we're in the very early stages of um battery powered locomotives wabtech has uh, has one which which we've uh, reported on it's a uh, um sort of a um it's not a low power unit but it's uh it's powerful but it has limited range and capacity there is a uh there's a the next generation of that is coming out which is going to have like triple the power or something but like like any as with batteries yeah battery powered locomotives you need the you need the charging infrastructure in place same thing with hydrogen uh, hydrogen fuel cells for long distance heavy haul freight. You you need the hydrogen refilling capacity. You need to you need to be able to generate the hydrogen or produce it. Uh, and how do you do that sustainably? Because um, depending upon how you produce hydrogen, it could be very polluting. Okay, same thing with uh, batteries, lithium ion batteries. Well. Uh, the the uh, the mining process needed to to mine the lithium um, is is not exactly clean. 
And then what do you do with those batteries once, once they're exhausted? Well, you can step them down to, you can, you can transition them to a limited capacity stationary purpose. But then once those batteries are, when they're totally exhausted, you know, what do you do with all, you got all this lithium and all this other junk. What, what, what do you do with it? Uh, it's, it's, that hasn't been, and nobody seems to have addressed that, at least, at least to my knowledge. Um, I think hydrogen fuel cell and battery uh, powered um, passenger rail operations are um, much more feasible. Uh, the, the, uh, I would love to see Alstom's Karadia Island tested, you know, brought over to here. It's been very successful in Europe. Um, that's the, their hydrogen technology is um, part of, it's actually uh, part of uh, Cummins now. And we have a podcast on our, uh, our website with Cummins. Um, you know, battery, there's, uh, there are uh, manufacturers that like, like Brookville Equipment, for example, uh, you know, there are, there are hybrid light rail vehicles that can run off, uh, off wire, as it's called. Uh, so they'll use catenary or they'll use um, uh, a system that has not been tried here in the U.S., which is popular in Europe, is the the uh, inductive, uh, you know, the, the electric pickup in, sunk in the ground where the, uh, it's actually like it's a third rail embedded in the, uh, in the pavement, uh, but the, the power is only energy, the, the rail, the electrical, the, the traction power is only activated under the vehicle, so it's not dangerous. You know, you're, you're not, you step on this in the street, uh, you're, you're not going to get fried like a squirrel, you know, climbing up a telephone pole. Um, I, you know, we'd like to see those. The, what, what, what is that called, Kevin? I, I name escapes. APS system. APS system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is the Dubai light rail network is entirely powered by that. So there's no catenary. It's, it's very popular in, in city centers where you don't want the overhead wires, you know, if you, you know, beautiful buildings around. So there's, you know, there's, yeah, there's, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. But there, there are various systems from other manufacturers around that yeah. do a similar tasks. So. Yeah, Amtrak now has uh, uh, placed a, an order for uh, uh, locomotives, uh, uh, train sets from Siemens. Uh, some of those will be hybrid. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's a major step forward. We've got here in uh, in the metropolitan New York metropolitan area, we we've got the Metro North and Long Island Railroad looking at uh, uh, hybrid and or battery uh, battery powered electric multiple units. So things are moving slowly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a definite trend in the industry. I mean, like certainly from the European perspective, there's, there's real momentum behind this. But uh, for, for us, you know, like mainline electrification is at least from a European perspective and you see it in you know, big markets like Russia and, and in China, entirely high-speed lines electrified. I mean, that's just the most effective and efficient way to you know, reduce your carbon output to zero, as long as the power is sourced from a green source, you know, and, and there's also a lot of movement towards that in rail, railroads and railways sourcing their electricity from green sources. So getting, uh, getting it from the wind power, like you were referring to before, Bill, and um, yeah, solar. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, yeah. in the US, like you don't think electrification is an option, you know, do, do you need like a PTC scale sort of, you know, federal legislation that you must? Do well, this? well, yeah, you'd have the railroads. That to, yeah, in order for the for the railroads to electrify, the government would have to come along and say, you will do this. Yeah, <laughs> just like have it like PTC, have it rammed down their throats. Yeah. But uh, um. You know, and the railroads spent, uh, the class one railroads uh, spent years tearing up a lot of wire. Um, when, when Conrail took over from the bankrupt uh, Penn Central back 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago, um, a, lot, a lot of the electrified freight lines were all the, in fact, you, you can see some of the Conrail, uh, the Conrail lines, uh, Norfolk Southern CSX, they still got the old catenary poles up. There's just no wire hanging from them. Uh, the Virginian, uh, the Milwaukee Road, the Great Northern, they, you know, dismantled all the, all their electrification and, and went to diesel. Um, the, you only see electrification, heavy electrification in, in the Northeast, uh, here in New York, of course, with NJ Transit and, um, and the MTA and uh, some of the Boston uh, 
uh, lines in the uh, MBTA. Uh, Bill, you know, in, in, in Chicago with the uh, um, Metro Electric, you know, that's uh, Caltrain is putting, is electrifying some of its service. Uh, 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 that project is a bit behind schedule, but that's really, that's all we see. Uh, not too much. Yeah, and there's also the skills involved with that and a big issue in our country here, UK, is a, they talk about a rolling program of electrification. So the, the guys and the girls that are working on electrification projects simply move on to the next one. You don't, you don't lose their skills to another industry because they haven't got a job to continue to. And you know, without yeah. that big basis of electrification in the US, you know, getting that, that the mm -hmm. people to do it on a mass scale is going to be would be a, another major challenge. Yeah, exactly. So let's turn to the construction side of, of the industry. And uh, I'm going to go out to Honolulu, Hawaii here. Uh, Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation, they have been building their first major light rail line uh, for a while now. Um, this is more like the Keystone Cops uh, building a light rail line uh, because it's been going on for a long time, a lot of delays, um, a lot of cost escalation going on. Uh, to the point where they they've been talking about shortening the line because there there's so much in the red uh, as far as cost overruns they're talking about shortening the line but this story in particular deals with the the track itself and it does not match they also you know ordered new trains to go along with this light wheel system and, and the track does not match the wheels on the train so the decision now is um, they had TTCI out there did a big study and the decision now is, okay, what do we do? Can we just change the wheel width in the trains or do we have to remove all the frogs we have throughout the system because it's obviously providing a, a, a wear and tear there. So it, 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 it's a mess right now. Um, they're still waiting for the final report from TTCI. Uh, but if you know if they remove all the frogs, that's going to be a huge cost uh, to do that. Uh, I think uh, changing the width of the wheels in the train would uh, for the train cars would be a lot less expensive. And I guess my question to Bill is, have you ever heard about about a situation like this happening where the the wheels don't match the track? Uh, yes, uh, but not is not really in the on the freight or uh, uh, mainline uh, rail the the only uh, the the most glaring example for for mainline rail was uh, was the original Acela train uh, in the Northeast corridor which which was uh, that 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 had the uh, very popular with the customers but uh, it was it quickly earned the nickname the fast pig because because it was so darn heavy 25 ton axle loads uh, on the corridor and the wheels were wearing uh, prematurely so it's not that uh, um, it's not that they, they didn't match the um, the, the track it's, it's just that um, the, 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 that particular train for the speeds it was going was too heavy uh, there have been uh, you find that more in the uh, the transit space the light rail uh, especially when uh, uh, wheel profiles are, are critical, especially for, for navigating like in a uh, track that's built in the street, uh, different types of uh, frogs and switches. Yeah, I just, I just think that you would make sure that the wheels and the track and the rail match, you know, before you, you know, it just seems like this is something that you would have cleared up long before, you know, the trains would be ordered and, and, and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's it's mind boggling. <laughs> it, it really is. Uh, you know, given that there are there are um, when you say match, it's really, you know, wheel profile to rail profile. There are various combinations for various uh, uh, needs and mo most will work uh, depending upon the application. But um, to have something that's so totally uh, totally uh, out of whack is uh, that that's like, huh? <laughs> really? Difficult yeah, it's to, been to one fathom. problem. Yeah. One problem after another with this light rail line in Honolulu. I still think that they're 
a ways away before this this line is even open to the public. So it just the problems continue to mount. So um, let's go over to New York City, and my second story deals with uh, LaGuardia Airport, which is perhaps the my least favorite airport to fly into. Although they're you know as you know they're doing massive changes, uh, they're building new terminals, and and I'm, I'm assuming I have not been in there in a while, but I'm assuming the new portions look uh, greatly uh, improved compared to the old portion. But they want, they're one of the few airports that have, or that don't have a direct transit line, light rail line, monorail uh, to the airport that leads to the airport. So they were putting this together and they, they came up with, hey, let's, let's put this monorail out. Let's, let's plan for a monorail line uh, that would, allow people to come in from the city and, and take the, the tra- train to LaGuardia to catch their flights. And that project has now been canceled. Um, the Federal Aviation Administration reviewed other forms of transportation, including extending the subway system. And the FAA said that the monorail was the best option. But New York Governor Cassie, how do you pronounce her last name? Is it Huckle? Uh, you know close enough, Hokel. You know? Yeah, Hokel. Yeah, Hokel. Yeah. And then uh, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, they're both against the monorail. Uh, there's an environmental group that has filed a lawsuit against a $2 billion project. It's a one-and-a-half-mile project as well. Um, even though the FAA approved, you know, it, it gave it environmental approval back in July. So now it faces, it's kind of doing a a do-over, kind of a start-over phase. And the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey are going back and they're going to take a closer look at at these options. So what was thought to be a solution now is on hold because they're not sure that the monorail is the best way to serve passengers that want to go to the airport. Personally, I would think the extension of a subway system would be the next best option, but that could be very, very expensive. And talk about, you know, environmental lawsuits and and politicians standing up and saying, hey, this is ruining my neighborhood. I can I can see, um, the, you know, the extension of the subway system to be a problem. So that's what I have. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any other questions regarding the, the construction side of things. But uh, it, it appears that there could be a long road before we get a transit line that leads directly to LaGuardia Airport. Is there any no sign of what the resolution might be to that situation, Bill? Oh, boy, it's, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll paraphrase uh, an old uh, blues and jazz uh, tune. Uh, Welcome to New York. It's a city full of fun. <laughs> Uh, I don't care what is proposed, somebody's going to be against it. Uh, and it, uh, it, it's just going to take, uh, you know, nobody can sit down and say, okay, let's, let's reach consensus here because everybody has their own agenda. Um, and we see the same things in Toronto, for example, with the replacing the, the Scarborough Rapid Transit, which is now finally, after years of, of haggling, uh, and political uh, political interference has been determined. It will be an extension of the. Uh, they'll replace the Scarborough with an, which is a uh, automated uh, above ground uh, rapid transit line. They will replace it with uh, an extension of the existing TTC subway, uh, most likely underground. So if the, if uh, you know if the Canadians can't get it right the first time, and, and in Ontario they're they're damn good at transit. Uh, all you have to do is look at all the projects going on there. Uh, you know, do you really expect New York City to make a decision quickly? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, what's going to any? You know, I think probably the thing or the system that's going to make the most sense is the one that is the most convenient for riders, okay, where they don't necessarily have to change trains or modes or something. You want to be able to get on a, um, a train in, in um, let's say, in Penn Station or Grand Central, whether it's uh, 
uh, a subway connection, for example, rapid transit, and you want to be able to have a dedicated airport train. Uh, JFK has something like that. Uh, there is a, a very convenient cross-platform connection from the Long Island Railroad at, Jama at Jamaica to the JFK air train. That works very well. Um, so why not something like that for, um, for LaGuardia, where you have a, uh, a connection to e either, either a direct line coming from one of the subways, okay, or, or you have a, an easy cross-platform change with, with the Long Island Railroad. But that makes too much sense. It seems like the only people that make, do well, this are the cab drivers. You know, the, that, that, that's the default option when you arrive, even at JFK. I mean, yes, the, the size of New York, you know, the caliber of city it is, it should be a dedicated, fast link to the center of the city. You know, and this modern day planning, you should be talking about yeah. getting, getting traffic off the roads and getting people on the onto mass transit and, and moving around quickly. And yes, the situation there is you know, is pretty. Yeah, I, I I know some I know somebody who uh, is traveling abroad uh, and uh, has to go from New Jersey to JFK because the, the the flight from JFK abroad is the most convenient. And this person asked me, uh, well, how do I get to uh, JFK from here by train? I said, well, you've got to take three trains: New Jersey Transit, Long Island Railroad, and JFK Air Train. And, and this person said, uh-uh, not doing that. I'm going to take a limousine. <laughs> there you go. Well, Andrew Cuomo, you know, the former governor of New York, this was his project. This was his baby. So then, you, you know, he steps down. You have this new governor that steps in and she's like, well, I have my own agenda. And, you know, just steps in and puts a wrench in the whole operation. Uh, you know, if Andrew Cuomo didn't, you know, be a bad boy here, you know, maybe we could have had this thing uh, already started as far as construction goes. But here we are uh, kind of back at square square one and, and it really I really do think that they're going to come back and they're going to say you know what an above ground light rail line is or monorail is is really the best choice for this I mean when you're talking about an extension of the subway system that's going to be an enormous cost anytime you're talking about you know building underground um, it's always going to be extremely expensive it's going to start off with one price point and you know that price point is going to go up because they're going to come across with all kinds of issues uh the tunnel boring machine is, is in itself is comes with a million different issues that can come up so i i just think that they're going to come back around and say you know what let's still go with the monorail now how long far out that's going to be as bill said who knows it could it could be another five years before they finally work it all out so or like the Second Avenue subway, it could be another. It could be fifty years. And to Andrew Cuomo's yeah. credit, love him or hate him, he knew how to push projects through, and he got that Second Avenue subway first leg done. But an astonishing cost. There's no doubt about it. For, for the length of that route, for the cost that it was, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. I, I, oh yeah. I, I, no, the cost of doing projects in New York in in general is just it's, it's mad, and th things like that need to be addressed. The, the whole you know, the cost of everything is, is, is always at the, at the center point. And, um, you know, it's, they're always talking about expediting these projects and, you know, the taxpayers are, are always crying, you know, why is this so expensive and why are the prices going up? And, you know, you start a project that's three or four years long that takes three or four years to build and prices change you know, during that three to four year time span. And usually they go up, you know, when you're talking about material prices and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, trying to get a cap on pricing, boy, that would be, that would be something if we can, if we could do that. We hope you enjoyed the premiere episode of On The Line and watch out for future episodes as we cover the important news stories in our sectors. On behalf of Bill Van Tuono and Kevin Smith, I'm Bill Wilson and I will see you down the line.